Welcome to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Welcome to The Commercial Disco. Today I'm speaking to Andrew Stevens, the Chairman of Innovation and Science Australia. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Uh, thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Okay, now you're, I'll just, a, a brief potted history of yourself. Currently, you're also chairman of Consumer Data Rights Australia or the... Data Standards Body, the te- which developed the technical standards for uh, the consumer data right, first sector open banking. That's right. And previous to that, you were chair of the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Centre, which has had some tremendous success. And then, you know, a long history, managing director of IBM Australia, you've been on lots of um, boards as, as a non-executive director. Okay, so obviously we have to talk about the COVID and, and your day-to-day. Can you tie those two things together? Like, what does your, your day-to-day look like? And how has your work with Innovation and Science Australia changed since this pandemic has really kind of taken hold? Yeah, sure. Well, day-to-day, like most people, I'm being working in uh, glorious isolation in the COVID casual I must say, I put a jacket on just for you, James, and you and your viewers uh, for uh, commercial disco. That's my first jacket I've worn today. And I must say, I'm a bit nervous having fattened the curve, what it's going to be like if I ever have to put a suit on again, because it's been a while. And while I've been doing a fair amount of, you know, exercise and I've been lucky enough to play golf pretty regularly, which has been good. I'm yeah, a bit worried about that. So basically, most days involve a schedule around mostly organised conference calls and video conferences like this, whether they are board meetings, discussions on specific issues. For example, this morning at 9 o'clock, I joined Minister Andrews and the Manufacturing Roundtable just to talk about manufacturing, post-COVID, sovereign capability and, uh, you know, how we and where what the manufacturing sector thinks should be the plan to exit COVID. Uh, from there, I went on to an audit and risk committee meeting on one of my boards, happened to be the GWS Giants, and we're looking at, given where we are currently on COVID, then the reality is that we hope soon to be having announced that we'll be returning back to play, albeit without crowds. But the reality is, and many businesses are facing this point, that a return to play doesn't mean a return to work. And so with the question for certainly the administrative staff who've been working very, very effectively in this online, remote, video and digitally enabled way, but that's going to be the, uh, the norm for, for quite some time. The impact on professional sport is incredibly complicated in its own supply chain mm-hmm. ways. I bet you didn't see that kind of complexity coming when you joined that. Uh, even though uh, there's a few people who are smart enough to have you know, global pandemic on their risk registers, there's not too many who had that yeah. uh, there at this sort of scale where there was, you know, contagions and others. But but like the, um, the not-for-profit sector more generally, elite and amateur sport has been, you know, fundamentally impacted. And, and the question really is what elements of this should we take into the future? And realistically, your question about how does COVID inform what we're doing in the Innovation Science Australia. It's really that question. I don't think we, well, our view is certainly that we don't want to be sleepwalking our way back to the past in the ways we used to do things. And if we just let things emerge and we're 
just ho- let's hope we, you know, let's see how many survive on the other side, whatever the other side means, is quite a different outcome to plotting how it is and what it is that we want to end up with in terms of the economy, the the nature of business, and to some extent, the society we want to work and live in post-COVID-19, however long it takes. So that's the question. Do we do we end up with what we just, what's the result, or do we choose and have strategic and policy choices? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite extraordinary, and I, particularly in the manufacturing sector, and obviously your experience through the growth centre uh, would be brought to bear here. And I don't know whether that's because that's the reason you've taken a greater interest now or not, but... Um, but anyway, there you go. Do you find yourself more involved in the manufacturing sector compared to the sort of, you know, the broader landscape of the innovation ecosystem for one of the better? Not, not really. I, 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 in terms of, that was just today, but I've been on tech roundtables and spoken to many people in the tech industry. I've been on the venture capital roundtable that Minister Andrews also had because one of the questions in COVID is what's happening to investment levels in venture capital in startup, scale-up, and even substantial businesses, and it's vital that, that that level of investment is not only maintained but increased. And so some of the questions that have been surfaced there, this question about Foreign Investment Review Board being energised to be alert to Australian businesses being picked off at, at unrealistically low prices from foreign investors and whether those controls and that alertness will get in the way of uh, top-up of existing funding in some of these entities. And so I, I think the one thing the manufacturing sector has done for me is given me a, for a business that, uh, and a sector that relies on innovation to survive, quite frankly, it was very, very good training and background introduction for my time in this role and, and realistically to take those insights and to take them forward on a wider scale in terms of Australia and our, our innovation credentials, our competitiveness stance was just too uh, too attractive to I mean why could I how could I say no to that? Yeah. So well let's stick with manufacturing for for a moment. The manufacturing genuinely does seem very energized as a sector right now. There's a lot of talk about you know yeah. the retooling. I think Karen Andrews brought forward that uh, manufacturing modernization fund. I think they've spent all that money now to uh, to get it out to to companies that can retool. So I guess my question is this, on, the, on sovereign capability and, and building Australian capacity, you know, we could sleepwalk back to where we were or we could keep sleepwalking all the way back to the 70s. So how do we have a, a you know, globally competitive manufacturing sector as opposed to trying to underwrite a certain pick of areas where we've identified sovereign capability issues? Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I mean, there's a number of really positive outcomes uh, that have that are still in place and developing right now from the COVID-19 disruption. And, and the, the Australian community's engagement, re-engagement, I'd call it, in, in manufacturing is just one of those. The attention that's been directed by the community, largely because of, I think, the concerns and, and potential risks that we all became aware of in around, you know, personal protective equipment, uh, ventilators, and other supply chain disruptions, even as far as, even though they've passed now, we're, we're at the unbelievable position where our major retailers were advertising to reduce demand and to reduce sales because of panic buying in some areas and so the supply chain. So I think we, we've got a, a renewal of the compact 
between the community and manufacturing. And people now, I think, are stepping up and saying we've got to fight more for it. That's one. Two, if we look at what it is that manufacturing and, in fact, most of our existing sectors need to do, I don't think it's a lot different to what they needed to do before, but the urgency and the priority with which it has to be done has gone up substantially. And what I mean by that is I think before COVID-19 and we spent in the growth centre four years where we studied the success, the, the characteristics of successful manufacturing companies and successful manufacturing industries across the world and where there was different cost structures, there was different tax incentives, there's different tax rates, there's different government programs, there's different all sorts, different nationalities, different languages. The reality was that the characteristics of successful manufacturing businesses were remarkably similar. And the 2,500 Australian manufacturing businesses that are highly successful, some of which are measured by the ABS in manufacturing and some that aren't, so CSL, Cochlear, ResMed are manufacturing companies, but they're not included in manufacturing in our index, in our industries, then basically the reality is those businesses compete more on value than on cost. And so being better is more important than being cheaper in the case of medical products, med tech. And so we see in the paper today, you know, CSL announcing, which they did actually on their earnings release, that they are progressing with the manufacturing of an immunoglobulin product. Boy, that's a mouthful. Uh, late in the day, uh, that is derived from plasma from people who have recovered from COVID-19. And this is a venture to provide the healthcare workers who are highly exposed with the first and most powerful potential assist to recover if they are infected. And so, again, you're not going to win that game by being, oh, I've got a really cheap solution. You're going to win by being the best. Same with cochlear. So that's the first one. Second one is that manufacturing is much more than production. And as I explained this morning to our colleagues on the Manufacturing Roundtable, that while it's great that businesses have pivoted to make PPE and ventilators, I'm not sure that too many of those businesses will be in the ventilator or PPE business in 10 years. And so there's a difference between production and being a manufacturer which starts at design and goes all the way through the value chain, all the way through to service. And realistically, we know that the successful manufacturers have worked out what's happening, which is the value added in production is falling and has been falling consistently since 1970. And the value added as valued by the customer is increasing in design and it's increasing in service. So the answer is we've got to add more value in those things. And by the way, they're intangible, those two attributes. Design and service is intangible value, whereas production tends to be, it tends to be about atoms rather than feelings and emotion. And therefore, that's important. The third aspect is we've just got to innovate more. And I know, James, you read that report that we did at ISA called Stimulating Business Investment in Innovation. One of the things that Minister Andrews has asked us to do in the Statement of Expectation letter that she wrote to me as the chair was to look into business investment in R&D and innovation. And what's interesting is it's absolutely clear that not enough Australian businesses are investing in innovation. And therefore, an innovation in both R&D 
and non-R&D areas. And by non-R&D, I mean things that don't involve a scientific method and very significantly this non-R&D in investment, which is in around improved business model and business processes, involves the use of software, which brings tech into the equation. So the third thing manufacturing has got to do is invest substantially more in innovation. And I would say, this is Andrew's view, a lot more in non-R&D innovation because it's the intangible value delivered by non-R&D innovation that's the difference between success and failure in manufacturing. So it's a formula for the country, but it's certainly very applicable in manufacturing. So I wanted to ask you two things. Firstly, just as a general statement, in the kind of the design and service areas of what we're talking about in manufacturing, as a general statement, are we just no good at that stuff? So if we're talking about the kind of pre-sales yeah. understanding of markets and then the, you know, the packaging and the user experiences, they unbox their stuff. Are we no good at that stuff? Uh, and, and secondly, to that report, are we, is this a genuine issue of the amount of money business is investing or it simply hasn't previously been measured in this way? Am I missing the... Uh, I, I, in a, in, no, no, no. Uh, James, I, I would say that the answer to both questions is the same and the answer is we're just not doing enough of it. So if you look, um, Ford Australia now doesn't assemble cars anymore. But what it does do is it's involved in product design, product testing and product evaluation. And for the Asia-Pacific time zone, and Kay Hart, the Ford CEO, has told me that their employee numbers in those three things now are in the vicinity, I think, of 2,500 people. So in exactly the things that you said, James, that we have a, a serious level of capability in those areas, and if you look at the work that's going on in res research and design and development at CSL around that immunoglobulin uh, around using plasma from recoveries, that's another example there of where we have it. And likewise, in servitization, when we looked at in the medtech and pharma area, so in the area of companies like Cochlear, we found asked why did companies overseas buy from Cochlear? Why do doctors buy from Cochlear? Because the level of service they receive from the company in terms of understanding its use and how it works is second to none. And so if those of you who have a smartphone, the reality is that 5% of the sales price is the cost of producing the item. 95% is in the design, the inbound logistics, the outbound logistics, the marketing and sales, and importantly, the service. And so the reason why Apple stays with its extensive store network is to provide the service to us. And also, when you have that experience that I've had, which is, oh, uh, sorry, Mr. Stevens, your phone, its warranty finished four months ago, but don't worry, we'll replace the phone anyway. That's the thing that is actually the service that's there. And it's all that intangible values. I like this phone. I mean, people queue up for 24 hours, sleep out on the street rough to be the first person to have that phone, which talks about the value of design, and then they know the confidence of it. And all these things are very important characteristics. The answer is we've got to do more of it. So 6% of Australian businesses told, told the ABS that they spend any money on R&D, and less than a third of businesses in Australia, less than a third, say they spend any money at all on any form of innovation whatsoever. So the non-R&D innovation is five times as frequent, but the reality is 
I don't think a third of businesses innovation, innovating is the foundation that we want to rely on for a high growth, high prosperity uh, economy that will underwrite a viable and forward thinking and forward looking and great job prospects economy and society. It's just not enough. Yeah. So the answer to both is we can, we do, but we need to do a lot more. Yeah, those numbers are, are, are pretty grim, aren't they? Confronting, are they? At the end of the day, they're, they're, they're pretty grim. So um, to your point earlier, I suppose the, the sleepwalking comment, we don't want to be, you know, end up in a position where having energised ourselves and our and various sectors, that we all end up back in, in Shenzhen anyway, collecting yeah. our, our goods. Perhaps a, a useful way to talk about it would be, if you can, what's your program of work look like now yeah. for innovation and science? It, it, it's, James, it's early yet, and our, our initial work is in the area of actually trying to put a, let's, let's call it define the problem so that it's half solved rather than necessarily getting to solving it first off. And so this question about sovereign capability is interesting, that sovereign capability is usually developed in response to having a sovereign need. And we're not sure yet that in, in widespread areas, in defence, we have done this work. But in other areas other than defence industries, it's not as clear to us that we have developed the list of sovereign needs. And so where, for example, if we were to develop, well, let me build the concept first. That's one dimension is sovereign need, high and low. The other dimension that we're exploring is this area of industrial advantage. And industrial advantage is two things. One is about comparative advantage, which is the underlying characteristics. So in food and agribusiness, for example, we have a strong comparative advantage. The other area is competitiveness. And the combination of those competitiveness and comparative advantage, we're sort of putting together as industrial advantage. So if you have high industrial advantage, so you've got comparative advantage, your businesses are highly competitive, and you have a high sovereign need then you've got strong domestic and export market and it's highly likely that your businesses and the products and services they sell are world leading in that area. Conversely, low sovereign need and low industrial advantage. So we're highly dependent on this imports. We don't have comparative advantage and we don't have businesses who have competitive offers with substantial and growing market shares, revenue growth and margin expansion. In that case, it's probably going to be trying to make the water run uphill if we're trying to build sovereign capability in areas with no industrial advantage and not much sovereign need. And so there's, it's actually a two-vector view we think we need, sovereign need and industrial advantage, because after COVID, while we will move to being less focused, I think, purely on efficiency and just in time, to more about resilience and a bit more just in case in supply chains and less interdependent and more self-reliant as a nation, it's a balance and the balance will move that way. But the reality is we don't see, and I certainly don't see, that there's going to be any replacement for the competitiveness of our products and services, which will re require us on playing in the toughest competitions on the global scale to make sure that we're at that level. And as we know from all of the work 
that I've seen in the manufacturing sector and others is this intangible value is increasingly the differentiator in terms of that competitiveness and it's non-R&D-based innovation that is the secret. And the reason why we finished our report and put to Minister Andrews in their recommendation to put an incentive in place for non-R&D innovation in specifically software was because if the Prime Minister is still on his objective that Australia will be a leading digital economy by 2030, non-R&D innovation and investment in software will be absolutely critical to do that. Otherwise, I, I certainly can't see how we can do it. Therefore, those businesses that are leading the way, we should be encouraging and stimulating them to do that so that the government can accelerate what's happening because it is happening over time. So, I'm, I mean, I, I should ask you how that, how that argument's going because the, the, that R&D tax incentive as far as software, the software sector goes and, and startups in particular has been a bit of a running sore, hasn't it, as far as... Yeah, um, and I think it's progressing well. And the reason it's progressing well is when we looked at the correlation and Alpha Beta did the work for us using the zero small business insights. So D identified data from all of the population of all the Australian businesses that use zero, And you look at which companies were using software spend as a proxy for non-R&D innovation. And we looked at Where's the median? Uh, interesting. I'll just ask you and those listening on this podcast, you know, what you think as a percent of revenue the median would be. The reality is it's 2% of revenue, right? 2%. So those businesses that invest, whether it's capitalised or expensed, more than 2% of revenue are growing their revenue by 3.5 percentage points, so 350 basis points faster than those on the other side of the median. And interestingly, talking about technology and the future of work, that those businesses who invest more in software than the median of 2% were growing on average their jobs at 5.2 percentage points or 520 basis points faster because those businesses were more successful. And while it's that small and medium business, when we looked at ASX 200 businesses, it's the same effect, but it's slightly more muted. It's not quite those same uplifts, but there's uplifts. And so the reality is that we've got to get to the point where, well, let me go. CSL invests double digit, I think it's 12 or 13% of revenue, and that's billions. Yeah. Uh, Cochlear, Atlassian, 40 something percent of revenue. All of these resmen, if you go through them, these aren't 2%, 3%. These are serious levels and there will be a mix of R&D and non-R&D innovation. So it is no surprise why those businesses are successful and no surprise why their market share, their revenue and their margin are all expanding because they are investing appropriately, and that's the point. I mean, you would think that's a fairly compelling argument to, to take to a Cabinet room. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I would have thought that the Prime Minister is sympathetic to that stuff. I have no idea how much it's going to cost, obviously, but... Uh... Well, the first thing is would be to look at the regime and then the question is how much would be allocated. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and there's two, two questions there. Our recommendations published in the report, people can read it, uh, is we said that we thought that there was an opportunity for the government to consider a non-R&D innovation stimulus through grants 
for a defined period of, say, five to 10 years to basically say, let's give ourselves an accelerator in getting ourselves into the intangible value that really today largely defines competitiveness, but also as we're learning now in the transition in the COVID environment, the impact that going digital really has. I mentioned earlier there was some real standouts in what's happening right now in the current environment. The ABS have just published data. 38% of businesses say that they've changed the way in which they interact with their customers, deliver their products and services. And everywhere you go, whether it's cafes, restaurants, anything that have pivoted immediately and the cafe up the street from me not only has shut their restaurant, they're still doing takeaway coffee, but they've pivoted to now do order of your groceries and they'll pick them up from the market from you and deliver them. The the yacht club next door is basically uh, pre-cooked, frozen, whatever you want. And I I would say, James, in non-R&D innovation, I'd say the last six weeks has been more non-R&D innovation under the pressure of necessity than we've achieved in probably at least 50 years. And the question for me is, what are we going to do to keep that going post-COVID-19? Because do we want to sleepwalk our way back to how it was before or do we want to keep it going? And it's really interesting when you ask people that question, a lot of people are saying, you know, I'm not sure I want to work how I used to work before. Because in my case as a non-exec director, I I spend a lot of my time travelling and moving between locations. Well, now I just go from Zoom to WebEx and to Microsoft Teams on this device and I'm there. So I'm wasting less time travelling, but I'm getting much more done. And I think in terms of the connection in business, it's as good as it ever was. The social part, got it. That's not as good. And, gee, I like to have a return to footy and have some at the theatre and, and all of that sort of stuff. But the reality is business is just pivoted and pivoted marvellously. So when Michael Brennan from the Productivity Commission talks about the, del- the, the, the deficit in dynamism in the Australian business context, and he was right, well, now the last six weeks have been probably the peak of dynamism and change that we've all seen. And I just say, wow, if only we could do this day in, day out for a decade, where would Australia be in GDP per capita? Where would we be in sovereign capability and industrial advantage? And where would we be in terms of the future of work for our kids? I think we'd be in a pretty nice place. Yeah, it's, uh, I've had a, had a few conversations like this about Australia not having had a burning platform since literally probably uh, World War II. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we really have been blessed in, in that way in the last 27 or 28 or 29 years, whatever it's been. You know, we, we haven't had that, that kind of impetus. We don't want to stay on a burning platform either. No, but, uh, it, it gets too much. But, but, it's, but it's been quite extraordinary. Look, I'm conscious of time, but very quickly, and this goes to a whole bunch of the themes we've been talking about, I guess sovereign capability in those three areas that you talked about, sovereign need and, and the industrial advantage. So one of the areas we've, we've been talking about, and I'm kind of pulling this out of nowhere, but lithium, lithium. Manuf- we're we're going to start manufacturing, potentially, you know, uh, processing lithium, but potentially also trying to build a battery industry here. Mm-hmm. What, so, like, that's, that's definitely a case of, of picking winners, but it's also to some of the arguments you were making about industrial advantage, I guess we could argue that we do have some there. So can you talk to that? I'm, I'm not sure how into the kind of the, the battery sector that you, you've had a look, but 
just from the scaffolding you put up before, yeah. what, is, what does an industry like being batteries look like from that point of view? Fortunately, when we had our Innovation Science Australia board meeting in Perth, we went over a day ahead and we visited, uh, not in anticipation of this question, James, but uh, visited the Future Battery Industries CRC team. Right. And they are looking at a range of chemical reactions that are involving lithium, nickel, and a range of things with support from BHP and numerous other very, very large industry players. And when, back if I go back to 2015, when we were forming, putting together the, the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Centre, we went to the US to look at their research institutes and how they worked. And interestingly, everywhere you went, we thought, well, this is, you know, what you're doing in manufacturing. We said, well, what's that stuff over there? And everybody said, oh, that's our battery research. So battery research and energy storage is one of the hottest items, I think. So if you said there's an area where you'd want to place some investment, that would be one. The thing that is interesting about this, and again, it's back to the scaffolding around the value of production versus the value of the design and the value of the service, is it would be reasonable to expect that the value-added curve in batteries and battery energy storage would be something like it is in most other sectors. And therefore, being able to produce the battery, might, which, like the battery in your smartphone, the worry is that if we major on the minor and we focus on the 5% of the true value, yeah. then we'll do really well in the small fishing in the small pond. And the reality is that the control systems an energy management system that enable the management, the personalization, the trust, the reliability, the availability, and all that stuff are going to be, I think, disproportionately valuable to the consumer. So if you look at what the Tesla vehicle offers versus another equivalent vehicle from a traditional manufacturer, it's intangible value delivered via software such as I can turn on half an hour before I get in the car on a hot day, I can turn on the air conditioning so it's cool by the time I get in there. One day autopilot, and I don't have a Lexus, uh, a, a, um, a Tesla, one day autopilot, I'll say, come to me and the car will come to me. But all of that stuff beyond the, the actual tangible is the same thing that really is the prospect, I think, for the battery industries. And we've got to get our, our mindset in Australia thinking beyond that tangible value because that production value is falling in the eyes of the customer. It's getting cheaper and more efficient and more optimised. And the reality is the value is in trust, reliability, availability, design appearance, all that stuff, which is the intangibles and the confidence that you get through the warranty, the service, the information and all those things. And we tend to want to get ourselves back to the production point all the time. And really, if we open our eyes to the other parts of this value-added curve, which looks like a smile, then I think we'll all be smiling if we can really get to the point and invest and put our capability there because we're good at design. We're great at service. We have a wonderful service industry. We know we're one of the leaders in service industry in the world. And to be able to bring that to all products and services 
to really fill out our value-added profile in our products and services, I think is a no-brainer and it's going to make a fundamental difference. Right. Uh, Andrew Stevens, I, wanted, I do have one more question that I, that oh, I want to ask Andrew. you, but that was... I wanted to end it on... And on such a, a, a positive note, I really appreciate uh, your time today and, and coming on. I know we're, we're running short. I did want to ask you, though, about defence and the defence spend and our ship shipbuilding and all, you know, we are investing substantially in these massive build programs. I guess uh, from an Innovation and Science Australia point of view, do you think, are we extracting enough value out of the out of that defence spend? I mean, obviously, it's a giant industry program itself. It's it's all about sovereign capability and capacity. But mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we've kind of if we've somehow you know managed to 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 mesh our broader ecosystem into that defence spend in a way that we've you know that that we should. I don't think anyone would say that we're doing we're, we're yielding all that we can because there's always can be more. But the reality is that I think it gets back to this sovereign capability question and the role of government and industry procurement because that's really what the defence thing is. It's a procurement decision to lead to not only development of sovereign capability but industrial advantage. And as I said earlier, James, I, I think we've got to look at both dimensions and we've got to find a way of doing it. The thing is if we force fit this, into areas where we have low sovereign need and low industrial capability. And in the defence space, we we clearly have a strong, high sovereign need, right? So in that case, we've got one of the dimensions. What I don't know is, but I do know in the case of that Boeing announcement and that drone that that we're going to develop, you you deal with the organisations who are heavily committed to Australia. Boeing's second biggest manufacturing country in the world is Australia. So Boeing, strong industrial advantage, strong sovereign need, and we end up with something that I think is going to be, you think, is that going to be an export opportunity? Absolutely it is. Not only is it going to be a vital part of our sovereign capability in a defence term. So I think the key is we can't force fit the model. We have to use procurement, both our own industry procurement as well as our own government procurement to make a big difference. And so defining where the target is 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 as important as how we manoeuvre the contracts towards those things. And industrial advantage and sovereign need, I think, is the combination to get the crosshairs for exactly where we should be targeting. But the defence capability build is building enormous industry capability. And it could always be more, of course. The reality is if we had... Ten more of those at that scale, I think we'd be really getting somewhere pretty exciting. And uh, you know, as you can tell, I'm I'm an optimist. I think we're really good at solving problems in Australia. It's our under underrated capability. People don't understand. I know I work with Americans and people in Europe a lot. And often, when you're you're on the one corner of a triangle, if the if the rules said you have to go up and across. The Australians always went across the long side and got to the answer more quickly with that, and people were staggered as to why do we do it. It's innate because ever since the first fleet arrived, we've had to solve problems largely for survival terms. And as we've seen in this COVID-19, it's been about survival for these businesses. And crikey, they've moved like crazy 
to the point where they've learned a lot and people are now saying when you interview them, you see them every night, 7.30, report, whatever it is. People are saying we're not going back to the past. We've, we've seen the light. Well, let's all see the light. It's been an extraordinary, uh, ex- extraordinary period. Andrew Stevens from Innovation Science Australia, I want to thank you very much for coming on. And uh, thanks for being an optimist too, because uh, I think in the last six weeks or, or two months, there's a lot that we've seen in Australia that I think we can be proud of anyway, and that it really demonstrates, you know, to me, it, it illustrates a, a payback for having a well-ordered society that still has some trust in its institutions. And uh, yeah, it's been terrific. And, and institutions, including science. And again, the community's re-engaged with science in a massive way. And evidence-based, uh, fact-based it is something that's a, it, it's a wonderful thing. So there's so many good things that have come out of it. And look, I'm not glossing over the personal trauma for all these people that have been laid off mm. and are facing very uncertain presence and futures, quite frankly. I'm not at all. But the opportunity is what all we can do, those of us who are in and around the the policy context can say, let's make sure we build the environment to really make the fastest uptake of those people into the things that are going to make the greatest difference and then help them and help everybody. That's 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 the future and that's what drives me. Hey, thank you very much for your time. You've been very generous. Thanks, James. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is The Commercial Disco... Wishing you a great week ahead.